tonight, which is from Ephesians chapter 2. I would encourage you to uh, open that in, up in front of you, uh, either with your own Bible or the black Bibles under the chairs, um, because we'll be looking at that during the talk and referring to it. Uh, so I'll just give you a moment to get that open. So it's Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be reading the first 10 verses. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Good evening. My name's John. I'm the pastor at this church and It is a joy always and a wonderful privilege where we as God's people can open up the Word of God, read it together and try to understand it and know that God uses His Word to change our lives. So we come with great expectations. But let's turn to God once again in prayer and then we'll have a look at this. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that we would understand the depths of your love for us from this text as we consider it tonight. We pray, Lord, that our hearts will be changed by it so that our wills and our desires would align with yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we started on a new series on the church, God's design and purpose. And last week we considered the first of our topics, the church God calls. And when we considered the church God calls, we got to see inside the mind of God, God's eternal purposes, that he determined well before the creation of the universe to gather a people to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. That was what we considered last week. And today we'll be considering the church God loves. And when we consider this topic, we get to see inside the heart of God that God would even love us. Because think about that title, the church God loves just four words, but that statement in itself is extraordinary. The church God loves. Because why should God love anyone in the first place? Have a think about it. Why would God love you? Why would God love me? You see, in our secular world today, 
God is either just dismissed as not true, irrelevant, or if he does exist, then he's obligated to love me, to help me, to care for me, to even forgive me. But why? Why is it that people think this way about God, that he should love, that he should forgive? It was, in fact, Henrik Hein, 19th century German poet. When he died, he uttered the words that so many people like to believe. And he uttered these words. Of course, God will forgive. That's his job. But why? Why do people think that? Why do people think that it is God's job to forgive, to love? You see, in the ancient world, no one thought that about God at all. You see, the pagan gods of the ancient world did not love anyone. They instead played ugly pranks on each other, on the other gods. They played pranks on human beings. Aristotle, the philosopher, he taught that the gods, the gods could feel no love for human beings. Instead, the gods of the ancient world, they would do wicked things to humans. No love at all. In fact, they're after you. They're always angry at you unless you offer sacrifices. And if you don't, they'll come to get you. You see, in the ancient world, for anyone to claim that God would love or even forgive or show mercy or compassion, they would laugh at that. That was laughable. That was seen as a defect in any God that God would be that way. Even, even today in, in Islam, for example, Allah might be described as loving and merciful. But you see, the love and mercy of Allah is always contingent upon human behavior. I love you only if you love me first. Or in Buddhism, you, you don't get love there. The whole purpose of Buddhism is to lose yourself, lose your personhood. You, you see, relationships ultimately is not that important. And so forget loving anyone. And so why should God love anyone in the first place? It's an extraordinary idea that God would love. But it is only in Christianity that that is where you find that idea. Such that the Bible even dares to say, not that God can love or that God does love, but even dare to claim that God is love. It is extraordinary and you only find it in Christianity. And so our topic this evening, the church God loves. It is extraordinary. Because when we consider this passage, we see the type of people that God has set his love upon. It's extraordinary that God would love such a people. In fact, it was this passage, Ephesians 2, 1-10, that I chose to reflect on as a session for our elders at my first session meeting after my induction because I wanted us as the leaders of this church to know with crystal clarity and to believe wholeheartedly in our hearts who we are in Christ that we are loved by God before we started to get busy thinking about what we do, what we plan for God. You see, that's an important order. Who we are before what we do. Who we are before what we do. And in a sense, that's what we see in this passage. And so first, who are we? Or more specifically, who were we? 
It's past tense. And what is described here in the next few verses, in the first three verses, it's a, it's a bleak, black, hopeless picture of all humanity. It's describing, painting a picture as low as you can possibly get as a human being. You see, we're described here as dead, enslaved and condemned. Dead, enslaved and condemned. You see, the Bible does not shy away from calling things as they really are. We were dead. This passage is saying we were all once dead. The living dead, but dead. Yes, we breathed, we walked, we talked, but spiritually we were dead. And that's because, according to God, we were made by God and for God and to be with God. And so for any soul to choose to live a life without God, that is to be dead. And so you see, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now what does that mean? Well, to transgress means we have broken something. We've broken something of God's. We've broken the laws of God. And so the law do not lust. If we've transgressed, we've trespassed across that barrier, then we have sinned in this way. And to sin means we have fallen short, fallen short of the standards of God. If God says, be holy and perfect because I am, and for us to claim, well, no one's perfect, it means that we have fallen short, we have sinned. And so even that one verse paints a terrible picture of all humanity, dead rebels and dead failures. But yet the picture gets bleaker. It gets worse. Not only dead, we read now where, where we were once enslaved. And enslaved in three ways. To the world, to the devil, and to our fallen human nature. Now, this is making a claim on every single one of us, every single soul, every living person, past and present. No one is exempt. We were once, if not still, enslaved to this world. And so verses 1 and 2 again. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Now what does that mean? It means that the world stands in opposition to God. It stands against God and it enslaves everyone. It seduces it traps, it deceives, it ensnares people in believing things like God does not exist or that there are many gods or that you even have the right to live life without God or that you can even hate God. You see, that's the way of the world. And if you just consider our world, our city, you see this happening. It is this world that stands in opposition to God and it seduces and it enslaves I mean, just consider what's been happening in the rugby world. Now, I'm not a big sports fan, but you hear of these stories. I thought in rugby, they just throw a ball, kick a ball around. But yet, they're taking all these comments made offline so seriously. And you just wonder, what's happening with the sport? It's not about sport anymore, is it? I mean, when a Wallabies player, Samuel Karevi, he's a Christian man. 
on Easter, he expressed these words on social media. He said, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. I love you, Jesus. I mean, that's legitimate. That's what Christians believe. That's what we proclaim at Easter. What's wrong with that? But yet this world found it so offensive, so, so offensive that he was compelled to apologize for what he believed. This is crazy. You see, this is a world that stands in opposition to God and it enslaves people in rejecting God. It enslaves people in worshipping other gods. The gods of this world. The gods of materialism. The gods of wealth. The gods of fame. The gods of glory. Anything that displaces God. Once, we were enslaved just like that. But not only enslaved to the world, but also to the devil. Do you see verse 2? You followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. You see, what that verse tells us is that we can acknowledge that there is such a thing as evil and wickedness and the devil. He is real. I mean... How do you call the, the things that we see happening in our world, in our society? There is such a thing as evil. What do you call when, when Cambodia killed a third of their population in the killing fields? It was evil. We can call it that. What do you call the gas chambers of Auschwitz, the Holocaust? It was evil. What do you call 9-11? It was evil evil what do you call people who think it's okay to strap bombs around them and go and blow up people it is evil though it's unfashionable especially in the western world to, to speak of the devil or evil or anything that is really really wrong and stands against god what's the devil doing well he's busy busy wreaking havoc tempting seducing blinding, corrupting. I mean, just look at the irony in our own city. In our own city. Last month in Melbourne on the streets of uh, Flinders and Swanson, there was an angry protest against animal cruelty. The vegan protest, you may have, you may saw, uh, may have seen it when you were, if you were there in the city or saw it on the news. Meat is murder. Now, there's nothing wrong with being vegan at all. That's okay. Protest is fine. But let me point out the irony. So concerned about animal cruelty. And this is not a bad thing to be concerned about that. But yet the irony is that this is the same city where it is legal, even celebrated, when unborn babies are killed, aborted. I mean, does that make sense to you? Concern for the welfare of animals. What about the welfare of human beings? And what do you call that? Is it the way the devil gets away today with all that is evil and wicked is that he convinces the Western world that he does not exist and that evil is not true. Now, once we were enslaved to that as well, enslaved to the world, enslaved to the devil, and also enslaved to our fallen human nature. Verse 3. 
all of us also lived amongst them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful natures and following its desires and thoughts. We were once enslaved to our passions, our feelings, our desires. And that is why when, when us at one time, maybe even now, look at something and can see that is wrong, that is so, so wrong, but yet people do it anyway because they're following their, their heart, their sinful desires, their corrupt nature, and they cannot help themselves. I mean, how could anyone? This is, this is live, this is real, and I'm sure there are many factors involved, but how could anyone think that it is okay to have an affair, to tear families apart, to destroy their marriage? I mean, you look at it, you think, who's silly enough to do that? But it happens. Why? Because people are enslaved to their cravings. Or how could anyone think that it is okay to oppress the weak and the vulnerable, to traffic children and women? But it happens because people are enslaved to their cravings. You see, the way of the fallen human nature is the way of self-indulgence, self-seeking, self-exalting, self-loving, and it is enslaving. Now, if we think that is a black picture of humanity, it gets even darker. Not yet rock bottom, because rock bottom is that we stand condemned by God, as low as you can possibly go in the entire universe, not just in the ground, but condemned by God, not just rotting away, but under the holy wrath of God. And this is not, not a God who acts on a whim, acts capriciously, but one who is perfect and holy and righteous and will not leave any sin go unpunished. And so do you see the last bit of verse 3? Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. And so that's the picture of all humanity. And us at one time. I mean, what hope is there for such people? Dead, enslaved, corrupted. And that was what we once were. And so if you understand how bleak and dark the picture is, then do you see how remarkable it is that God would love anyone in the first place? that God will love you and me if that is what we once were. Do you see how remarkable and extraordinary that God would love in the first place? We really have to appreciate and grasp how tremendously extraordinary that is, the love of God. You see, we have to think about it and contrast it to how we might sometimes use the word love. You see, when I say or when you say, I love you, what do we mean by that? Or when God says, I love you, what does he mean by that? And how is it different to what we might mean? And so a little change of pace. Suppose there's a boy, James, takes a keen interest in a girl, Jane. James and Jane. He thought he'll 
splash out, invites her out to lunch. They go to, go to McDonald's. It's a nice day. And so they thought, let's do takeaway and let's go by Blackburn Lake. Sit by the lake, so romantic. The sun is shining, water glistening, the smell of rotten fish. That's okay, but romantic nonetheless. And James starts to enjoy his lunch, eating at his quarter pounder. And he turns to Jane and he says, you know what, Jane, I love you. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean for a guy to say that to a girl? Well, he could mean many things. He could be saying, Jane, I find you beautiful to look at. Your face, it, it doesn't hurt my eyes. It's, it's good. Your personality is so sweet. This quarter pounder melts in my mouth, but you know, your voice just melts my heart. And I can't imagine life without you. Now, this is, this is not me, by the way, so it's, <laughs> it's James. <laughs> I can't imagine life without you, but I love you. Now, what does he mean when he says, I love you there? Well, perhaps he means, I love you because I find you lovable. You're such a nice person, I find you lovable, and so I love you. Is that what he means there? He's not, he's not suggesting there, Jane. Let, let me be honest with you. Your personality stinks. Your eyes, they, they bulge like goldfish. Your, your ears flop like elephants. Your breath, unbearable. That's why I wear this Batman mask around. Your sight hurts my eyes. And it's not really helping me eat this quarter pounder. But I love you anyway. Now, it's not saying that easy. And so when we talk about the love of God, what do we mean there? What type of love are we to think of, the first or the second? That God will look upon us here at Surrey Hills and, and say, oh, you people are just so lovable, so adorable, your personality so sweet, and I cannot imagine life without you. Oh, no. We just read verses 1 to 3. That is not us at all. Instead, it's more like the second you see, your personality, it is rotten. It stinks. Morally speaking, all of us, you are filthy and wretched. The sight of all you have done in your heart, what has gone through your minds and your thoughts, it grieves me deeply. You've enslaved yourself to all that stands in opposition to me. You are dead in sin. Nothing lovable about you at all, but I love you anyway. You see, that's what the love of God is like. I love you anyway. In fact, I will love you even to the extent of sending my son Jesus Christ, my only beloved son, watch him crucified, body broken, blood flowing for you, unlovable people, but I love you anyway. You see, that is what the love of God is like. If we understand what we're like, we can see how tremendously extraordinary the love of God is. It's J.I. Packer, one of my favorite theologians. He said, It is staggering that God should love sinners, yet it is true. God loves creatures who have become unlovely, or one would have thought unlovable. 
There was nothing whatever in the objects of his love to call it, call it forth. Nothing in us could attract or prompt it. God loves people because he has chosen to love them. And no reason for his love can be given save his own sovereign good pleasure. And that is what we see in our passage. That is why we see verses 1 to 3. And so what has God done? He loved us and he made us alive. You see, we were dead. Dead people cannot help themselves, but God can. Look at verses 4 to 5. But, our very first word, but, even though you were dead in sin under the dominion of Satan, but, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And that's the church God loves. That's why those four words is so extraordinary. The church God loves. Once objects of wrath, now objects of love. Once dead, now made alive. And it is all free, all by grace, all unmerited, all undeserved. It is the church God loves. And if that is what God has done, then who have we become? Who are we now? We know who we were, that's verses 1 to 3. But who are we now? You see, at one time we were as low as you can possibly go in the entire universe. You can't get any lower than standing under the wrath of God. But now we are raised to the highest position in the entire universe, seated with Christ in heaven. It's extraordinary. From the lowest point in the universe to the highest place in the universe. That is what the love of God has done. And that is who we are. All that happened to Christ, God also did for his church. He made us alive with Christ, raised us up with Christ, seated us with Christ in heaven. I mean, you cannot go any higher than that in the entire universe to be with Christ in heaven, seated with him. And that's where God has placed us. You see that, verses 6 to 7. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And why? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You see, in heaven one day when we get there, in fact we're already seated there now, but when we get there physically fully one day, will be like the trophies of God's grace and kindness. will be like the evidence to the entire universe of how wonderful and extraordinary the love and glory of God is. We'll be with Christ. And that's why when the elders of this church, when we reflected on this passage, it was just extraordinary to be reminded of who we are in Christ, what God has done for us in love, and that is who we are. We are of Christ. We are with Christ. 
so that we can live for Christ. You see, we understand who we are first before we consider what we do. And so what do we do then, knowing what God has done? Well, here we have to always remember we cannot get this wrong. This is where Christians can go off track, when churches can go off track, when we get this point wrong. What do we do for salvation? What do we do to get a seat with Christ in heaven? The answer is we do nothing. You can't do anything when you are dead. You see, if you're dead, you cannot give yourself life. If you're enslaved, you cannot free yourself. If you are condemned, you cannot acquit yourself. It is only God who can do such a thing. Salvation is free completely and absolutely. And so we see verses 8 to 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, that is this grace, this salvation, this faith, not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so it means that the faith you have and express, even that is God's kindness to you. And so we read, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, no one at all in the entire universe can stand before God one day and claim a little iota of merit. God, I know I was saved because of your work, but really, God, you only did 50%, I did 50%. No, not at all. Or we might even extend it. God, yeah, okay, you sent Jesus, he died for me, but maybe that's only 90%, we did 10. I said, no, not, not that at all. Or maybe 99%, God, you did that, I, I at least gave 1%. No, not at all. 100% God. If you're dead, you cannot help yourself. Only God can raise us, and he did because of Christ. By nature, we were under wrath. But by grace, and only by grace, can we be saved. No boasting amongst Christians at all. No boasting before God at all. But only deep, genuine humility before Almighty God. And that is the church God loves. And so what do we do for salvation? Nothing at all. And that is something so important for all of us to never, never forget. If you are not yet a Christian, then you have to really understand that it's not about knowing more about Christianity, being better at living, being more like Christians at your behaving trying to do more be more not at all you can only be saved freely by faith in christ and what he's done for you it's absolutely free always free because it is from the god who loves but if you are a christian then one of the wonderful implications of this is that because we did nothing for our salvation I'm not saved because I'm baptized. I'm not saved because I do good deeds. I'm not saved because I'm a minister, which means because it does not depend on me at all. I bring 0%. I can have absolute confidence in my salvation. Why? Because it all depends on God and his love, which he has shown so wonderfully in Jesus. 
You see, we have already been raised and seated with Christ. We can have absolute confidence. If I were to die today, I'll be in heaven. That is the wonderful confidence that only Christians can have. And that is why funerals of Christians are so remarkably different from the other funerals I've been to. There's always this atmosphere of hope, this, this strange but this joy that this person who died in Christ is with Christ. It is such a different feeling at Christian funerals. And I went to one yesterday and was so encouraging. You see, at, at funerals, everyone would speak so well of the one who died. Whether you're Christian or not, everyone who, who gives an eulogy, they'll always be glowing, so glowing, that you think that heaven's missing out on this person. But you see, for the one who died in Christ, their confidence is not about how well they live their life, how glowing the eulogy is. Their salvation rests solely in the God who has loved them and the God who continues to love them. You see, we do nothing for our salvation. 100% God. But once we are saved then, what do we do then? And that includes many of us. Now that we are saved and belong to Christ, what do we do? Well, everything we do is for Christ. We do everything for Christ. The church God loves is the church that must love. The church God loves is the church that must love. It's what God created us for. To do good works. To bear fruit. You see, our good works, our love and care and service, not so that we can be saved, but it's always, always out of deep gratitude of the love of God for us who loved us first. It's what God prepared us for. God did not save us so that we can continue in verses 1 to 3. It's not for that purpose. God saved us so that we can continue in verse 10. Did you see? For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's what Jesus said in our first reading, to bear fruit and fruit that will last. And so what that verse says is that for us who are Christians, if you claim to be a Christian, then this needs to be put into practice. Every single day there are good works for us to do which God has prepared ahead of time to express our love of God and our love for our neighbour, to express that I'm no longer dead, I'm no longer enslaved nor condemned, to reflect that the life I now have with Christ, to reflect that I'm indeed loved by Christ. You see, this is so good for us to remember. Every single day we are to do good works because God loved us first. And so I learned this prayer from, from another preacher. And it's a prayer he prayed with his kids, and I thought, that's a good prayer. I want to pray with my kids. And so every day with my own kids, I would pray verse 10. In the car on the way to school, when I drop them off, I would pray, Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll help Esther, Caleb, and Ethan, that today they will do the good works you have prepared ahead for them to do and that you'll help them do it in Jesus' name. 
You see, every single day there is good works for us to do. The church God loves is the church that must love. And so a question for all of us this evening is, how do you think we are going as the church of Christ here? As a church family? Do you think the church that God loves, that is us, are we the church that goes on loving? When I was a younger Christian, I mean, we get convicted by God in all sorts of ways. But when I was a younger Christian, about later university, about many of your age, the book that I read that really convicted me, that really changed my life path, one of them anyway, one of the factors, was the book by Packer, Knowing God. In the chapter on the love of God, he explained that quote that I read to you before. He asked questions about what am I doing in response to this God who loves me so much. And that really helped steer and shifted my life path and, and to head down to, to do ministry because if this God loves me so, what am I doing with my life? And so the questions he asked in this chapter, I'd like to share with you. For you to reflect in your heart of hearts. If God loves you so, knowing you were verses 1 to 3, God loves you so much, how do you respond? And so these are the questions. If God loves me so much, why do I ever grumble and show discontent and resentment at the circumstances in which God has placed me? You see, there's no accident in God's purposes. In whatever difficult situation I might be in, God loves me still and God continues to love me. Why do I behave that way? Or if God loves me so much, why am I ever distrustful, fearful or even depressed? God loves me. I'm safe and secure in his arms. Or if God loves me so, why do I ever allow myself to grow cool, formal and half-hearted in the service of the God who loves me so? I mean, Christians with lukewarm hearts. You know what Jesus says in Revelation? He spits it out. It is disgusting. Half-hearted, lukewarm Christians. Or if God loves us so, why do I ever allow my loyalties to be divided so that God has not all my heart? If you claim to be a Christian, which means you understand the, the darkness of your former life, but the extraordinary love of God. And so why? Or if God loves me so, could an observer learn from the quality and degree of love that I show to others, my wife, my husband, my family, my neighbor, people at church, people at work, anything at all about the greatness of God's love to me? When people observe your life do they see the love of God or do they see one just like the rest of the world and so how are we going as a church family you see the church God loves is the church that must love and everything we do must be for Christ everything let's pray O oh Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you loved us so. Though we were dead in sin, you made us alive and seated us with Christ. And so we pray, O oh Lord, 
that as your people, as your church, who know of your great love for us, help us, empower us to love as we must. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's time for the Q&A, so Johnny, come back up. Is this working? Yep. Great. John, what's that passage about girding your loins? Is it in Job, I think? Gird your loins. Get ready for the questions that are coming your way. Okay, we'll Here do. Here they come. <laughs> ben, can you um, bring the first one? It's, is someone saved at the point of believing in Christ as saviour by faith through grace, or when his works have demonstrated his faith, as in Matthew 25? That's a, that's a good question. So at what point is someone saved? Well, the simple answer is just the classic gospel summary. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life and not perish, which, which means that at the point of expressing faith, you showed that you have received the promises of God and you are saved. Fruits and good works must flow. They always must flow, but it is the point of faith. It is the point of faith. In fact, later this year, I mean, this is a little plug, we'll be looking at the book of James, where faith is never alone, because faith is always accompanied by good works, but it is the point of faith. Okay, thank you. Next question. What does God is love mean? So does it mean that God is the source of all genuine expressions of love and can we only truly express love through God in us slash the Holy Spirit? Hmm. Yeah, that's an excellent question. So the, the claim that God is love comes from the Apostle John in the book of 1 John. It's making a claim of what God is in his very nature. So God, uh, God is not someone who just loves people but he is the the essence of what love is is not completely about all God is. God is perfect, he is righteous, he is just and holy, but he is also love, which means he's the essence of what love is. And so does that mean that God is the source? Well, yes, God is the source of love. He's expressed that within himself, Father, Son, Spirit, in all eternity. And he's expressed that in creating bringing us into existence and sharing his love or expressing his love towards us and then bringing us into his love. And so if you really want to understand love fully, completely, you really have to understand God because love is from God. So in a sense, it is true. You, you, you know love fully only when you understand God and the extent of God's love is in the cross that he would even give up his son. And so, the, so in a sense, it's true. You can really only understand. Not that if you're not a believer, you can't express love. Everyone does express love because we were made in the image of God. We are to live and behave like God even if we do not know him. But to know it fully is to know God. The key word is fully, isn't it? Yep. Uh, last question. Uh, Ephesians 2.4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, uh, end quote, does God love those he does not save? Hmm. It's, it's a very good question it's this tension God loving does not override his justice so God will hold all people to account and all people are responsible for their actions in a sense everyone experiences the love of God 
in that we live, we have life, we have food. That is an expression of God's love for all creation. He cares for the birds, the, the sparrows. He cares for people. So everyone experiences God's love in a general way. But there is the specific love that is seen in Christ for those who come to faith in him, for those who will experience eternal glory. That is, in a sense, a specific love the church God loves. So, in a sense, all people experience the love of God because he made us and we live because of him, but a specific way which is only actually unique for those God has called to himself in the gospel. It's a kind of a special love in a sense. A special love for those whom he yeah. saved. Is that what we're saying? Well, it is, in a sense, a special love because it's a love that is seen and expressed and received in Christ. Great, great questions, great answers. Thank you, John.